Hi, I'm Jeannie Patel-Thompson from ListenToYourGut.com, and we have a fantastic food allergy testing discussion roundtable expose going on today. We have Debbie Sarfati Steinbach, who is a certified holistic health counselor in Colorado. She has a lot of experience in dietary modifications, and you can connect with her at wholenourishment.com. We also have, representing kind of the other side of the coin, Sharin Kalyan, who is the Director of Preclinical Research at Q Biologics in Vancouver, which is a biotech firm focused on immunotherapy for cancer and inflammatory bowel disease. So Sharin has a PhD in immunology and experimental medicine, which is why we want her here for the hard science aspect of this topic. And you can connect with her on LinkedIn. Her name is spelled Shirin, S-H-I-R-I-N, Kalyan, K-A-L-Y-A-N. So, ladies, thank you so much for joining me for this totally open, off-the-cuff discussion of what's driving us all nuts about blood food allergy testing. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> Good one, Shirin. <laughs> So I want to I want to kick this off by just saying, uh, and Debbie, I think you can speak to this because you're the one who has the clients walking in through the door. So tell me if you agree with me that the point of food allergy testing, the reason we go to our practitioner and get these blood tests done to um, detect food allergies, is taken from a food allergy testing company, and they here's what they say. Patients may appear with conditions such as headaches, migraines, irritable bowel, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, joint pain, depression, difficulty losing weight, just to name a few. So where do you start? By addressing the food-induced symptoms, you may quickly see a major improvement in patient outcomes, and food sensitivities could be the missing link for treatment-resistant patients. So, Debbie, is that what you find in your practice, that the people coming in are people who they maybe have an ongoing chronic or autoimmune condition, and they're, they're just can't figure out what's causing it, and they are really looking for answers as to how they can get their body in a better state of health. Is, would that be... That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly what it is, is generally someone that, you know, wants to take a more natural approach to their health, or they already do, or they're already on a pharmaceutical drug or a natural supplement regimen, but their health or their digestion is just not quite where they want it to be, and so they've, you know, heard that there's different food sensitivities that could be an underlying mechanism to what's going on for them. Right. So you never have someone coming in like, you know, like your your doctor would run your blood work just to see how things are. These are people who are really motivated by, you know, having a serious condition or, you know, kind of being faced with a puzzle that they can't figure out and they're thinking, well, maybe I'm allergic to something and that's triggering an ongoing, you know, low-grade or medium-grade inflammation. Exactly. Okay, because from this same um, uh, allergy testing, which is called the ALCAT, uh, they also say, the scientific fact is that white blood cells are always involved in food-induced inflammatory reactions. This is what we call mediator release. When the white blood cell is activated, the release of cytokines, prostaglandins, leukotrienes, and others ultimately result in subclinical and clinical inflammatory effects that manifest 
into clinical conditions and patient symptoms. So let's start with that because that seems to be the basis. And I'm wondering, Sharin, could you tell us if that is a fact or if that is old knowledge, well, new knowledge? What, what are, where are we going here? We, we do know that obviously your immune cells, if it's an f- actual food allergy, are the main sort of mediators of the response against the offending food. But um, this is a true food allergy is usually mediated through an IgE response, which is a type of antibody. Um, Say that again, IgE. E, E, okay. Yeah, it's an isotype. Um, There are some, um, a few handful of IgE um, negative food allergies, which are mostly regulated through IgA, celiac disease being the, the most common one of those. But the incidence of these is very low. So a true food allergy in the population is thought to be around 2%, um, and in, which is very different from a food intolerance. And so that kind of confusion, I think, is kind of rampant. A lot of these allergy tests are using a different type of antibody in their panel called IgG, and there's no evidence that IgG plays any kind of role in um, any kind of clinical symptoms of a true food allergy. And most people who are healthy, um, who are exposed to certain foods, will often have IgG antibodies to foods that they normally consume, such as almonds or garlic. One of my my friends was uh, sort of took one of these food allergy panels and he was told he was allergic to garlic and he cut that out of his diet. And there was no real change in his clinical symptoms. So I think that's where the confusion is, is uh, what is truly a food allergy? I don't think that is really defined properly with many of these tests. And um, and the way that they are sold, uh, I think the ALCAT is not even looking at an adaptive immune response. They're looking at just cells that uh, are releasing things when you add a whole type of antigen into a dish. And um, and that is, is not really shown to be diagnostic because I think you can you can take anyone's blood um, sort of cells and they may release things upon adding like some kind of bean to a petri dish and your immune cells may release granules, which does not mean that when you're eating something that you're going everyone's going to re- respond in that way um, to that food. That's a good point. That's a, when you phrase it like I like that. I think, wow, that's a massive leap of assumption. <laughs> yes. Right. Going. Oh, let's isolate these factors in a petri dish, and then assume that the exact same thing happens within the incredibly complex matrix of our physical body. Mm-hmm. I like what you said about the IgG test because that's what um, I was reading about too was basically summed up by saying the results from an IgG test show what an individual has already been exposed to, consumed, absorbed, digested, not what is causing an actual reaction or inflammation via food sensitivity. And that was um, put out very strongly by the European Academy of Allergy and Clinical Immunology back in 2009. So, what, so you're saying the best indicator of food allergy is the IgE, and then as a secondary, there are some um, substances that are covered by the IgA. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Okay. And then so let's go back into, I like what you said, okay, only 2% of the population is actually allergic to food substances. And by actually allergic, are you just, what do you mean by that? 
that they have an, an, uh, an antibody that responds to a protein antigen found in food that um, is causing these sort of harmful clinical responses, the worst being the most severe is anaphylactic shock. And so uh, most people don't have that kind of um, specific adaptive immune response against food, in, which, makes, which may make them feel ill or not make their stomach queasy or bloated. Um, it's often not an actual food allergy that is caused by an immune response. Oftentimes, it's a lack of an, uh, some, tr some type of enzyme, for example, lactose intolerance. is not an, an, uh, an allergy. It's actually a lack of a specific enzyme that helps you digest that food. So I think the way that uh, the medical community thinks of a food allergy is different from what uh, the general public often think uh, of food allergies or the way the term food allergy is used. And so, okay, so my first question is anaphylactic shock, obviously extreme, but what about things like um, rashes and increased mucus production? And where would those fall? Would those be considered an allergic reaction? Yeah, in it, those could be mild sort of symptoms that we, that you start off with initially um, to a particular uh, food allergen. So there's a there's a list of allergens that are common. They're usually protein-rich foods, like peanuts is an example that uh, have been associated with real food allergies, um, as is wheat, eggs, um, fish, and certain uh, shellfish. Most of these things may be associated initially with some kind of mild symptoms, and then over time they can get more serious. And those are the people when you have a, food, a true food allergy that can sort of develop to that state, they're often given like an EpiPen, an epinephrine pen, which helps uh, sort of calm the immune system down again. But um, most people who have, uh, like the, the vast number of people out there who think they have some kind of food allergy, that's not what is happening in their body. Usually it's not an adaptive immune response mediated by IgE against a particular food antigen that they're consuming. Okay, but in the true allergy, you said it's an antibody that responds to a protein antigen. Mm -hmm. So how is that differentiated from, you know, these blood allergy tests that show, oh, you have antibodies against this substance? Right. It's the type of antibody that they're testing. So oh, the oftentimes type. I'm not really sure why they're, they're – a lot of these food allergy tests, if you look at it, they combine these – IgE with IgG4 or whatever, and and they give you this combined result, and and where IgG4, as we we had talked about before, is just not at all associated with having any kind of um, actual food allergy that causes uh, clinical symptoms. Um, so if it was a true, I think the the best test initially is this sort of skin prick test where you can just put it on your IgE would be at, at here at the uh, sort of at the surface and it IgE is, is an allergen because it causes mast cells to release histamine and so you're you would get a rash immediately when you when you do a little skin prick test and you put that offending food um, on your skin um, that could be one of the first indicators that you have a true food allergy um, to that particular substance Debbie, do you have any comments or questions at this point? I do. I yes. thought so. <laughs> so, so with um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm totally clear about, you know, IgE testing and, you know, and, and agree with everything that you said about that. And most of my clients that have pursued IgE testing come back negative to, you know, most that they're not having, you know, the true allergy response to food. And as Jeannie said in the beginning, that's kind of why they pursue the IgG testing or the ALCAT, MRT testing. Um, so, so my curiosity is, you know, what is – what I gathered from what you said was that your experience with IgG testing is it's really more a marker of exposure or tolerance to the food than an allergy reaction to the food. Exactly. Yes, that's absolutely correct. And and so the the thing that just clinically comes up for me in that in looking at so many of these and especially you know the ones of of my own and just wanting to understand this for my clients um, is. Um, Oftentimes that is what you see, that a lot of the foods that come up are the, the main players in somebody's diet. You know, if they eat a lot of a certain food, um, those come up and, you know, kind of alternative health practitioners have said, oh, that's because you have permeability and you have leaky gut. So that's kind of one of my questions is, you know, does that really say something about a, a, a leaky gut barrier or is it just what you said before, uh, a marker of uh, exposure or tolerance? Um, and then the second one question that I have is um, how does it explain um, when there are other foods that are significant in someone's um, diet that they might have even on a daily basis that don't come up at all in the IgG test, which clearly they've been exposed to? Right. So uh, I'll tackle the first question. I don't think it's mutually exclusive. Um, you can't have um, leaky gut, which would help expose your immune system to that particular um, food much more clearly to your immune system. Um, so you, it could be the immune system could work at the mucosal level or it can, uh, it's easier to access it when you have a, a leaky gut. And the type of protein and the type of response that is being presented to the immune system um, is greatly defined by where and what context it is. So a lot of people with a leaky gut may have uh, more antibodies against certain types of foods because uh, just that access to the immune system um, mm -hmm. is greater in those people. But they'll have a, a, a number of other issues happening um, there. You also have mal, you know, malabsorption. You'll have gas. And eating too much of a certain food just because you can't digest it very well causes a lot of these sort of symptoms at the same time as, uh, you know, exposing your immune system to it. I'm not sure if that sort of makes sense, mm -hmm. that response. Um, this, what was this, the second question was in regards to why you can be consuming a lot of a certain food and not have any kind of immune exactly. um, recognition. Well, that's, you, you normally wouldn't want to have your immune system have being presented um, your proteins in your in your food. So in, in large part, it depends on what your cells that have to, the way your immune system works is that you have a certain type of cell called an antigen presenting cell that first engulfs a protein, chops it up, and then presents it to your uh, adaptive immune system, to your T cells there. Not all foods will induce this kind of response by your, these antigens or these phagocytic cells to actually expose it to the immune system in such a way that it's presented as a potential pathogen or something that might be dangerous. The only way that um, your immune system actually recognizes something, it has to have a couple of signals at the same time. These factors called cytokines are, are what 
allows your immune system to actually differentiate and respond to a particular protein. And so it's interesting to me that um, what is causing your immune system, why do you have the sort of subclinical response to certain foods? You might be having more of an allergic reaction or you might be causing more distress. Stress um, is very strongly associated with, um, you know, an immune response such as it uh, often potentiates allergies, which include asthma. Some people are much more prone to responding to non-dangerous things and producing antibodies to it. But generally, the the norm should be that you could be eating something a lot, and if you're not uh, sort of presenting it to your immune system in a way that it is a potential danger to you, you shouldn't be normally um, having any kind of antibody response to it, if that sort of makes sense. Even the IgG ones? Exactly. So IgG, eventually your body starts saying, okay, you know, this is not really dangerous. We've seen this before. Um, It doesn't come with another signal that says, you know, this is some kind of pathogen or something that should be, um, you know, taken care of and at a at a level where you want to eradicate it. So your sort of the immune system is quite clever, and evolutionarily it listens to a, a whole list of sort of um, signals from the environment, um, and that allows it to decide how it should respond to a certain protein. Mm-hmm. So it's always in the context. So in the context of a food protein that's being presented by your immune cells, those antigen-presenting cells, if there are not a lot of other dangerous signals around, it will just... Um, make a class of antibody that sort of allows it to be tolerized to that food. And mm-hmm. um, this is still being um, studied to a greater extent. Like most, a lot of immunologists and allergists don't, under, uh, don't have the whole pathway defined. What allows your immune system to get tolerized to a certain protein versus launching a, an anaphylactic shock type of response. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that part is how that decision is made is still quite phase, uh, hazy in terms of our knowledge. But I think once we, we have a better handle on it, it would certainly help sort of clear up all, all these sort of um, allergies or, or even autoimmune disorders that people have. And I'm wondering as well, Sharin, like what you've said, and I'm going to repeat it, and you can correct me, of course, if I've got it wrong. Mm-hmm. You have um, the antigen-presenting cells that engulf a protein, chop it up, then they present it to your immune system with a signal as to whether it's dangerous or not, correct? Exactly, yeah. Okay, so, and then what everything what you said about, okay, the immune system listens to all kinds of things in the environment, takes in a ton of information, and then makes a decision as to whether to signal that that substance is dangerous or not. And stress is intimately involved in this decision-making process. Mm -hmm. And then, as you pointed out, there's all these other things that we don't understand that are involved in the decision-making process. And that actually makes a lot of sense to me because, you know, I've seen a lot of cases where people have used a mind-body interface like um, the EFT tapping, for example, and they have had severe, like I know this one woman, she had such severe allergies that, and, and this was not things that she could mentally decide she was allergic to. She would be, you know, at someone's house who she'd given a list of her allergies and all of a sudden she would have a reaction, um, you know, like a, her throat would swell or something. 
and they'd go digging through the garbage to see the wrappers of what the person had cooked with. And there would be, you know, in the 1% ingredient panel, something, one of her allergic substances. Like that's how, that's how hypersensitive she was to her food allergies. And she cleared every single one of them using EFT. Um, you know, which is, you know, tapping on the acupuncture points. So you're interfacing with the mind, the physical body and the, or the emotional body and the energy system of the body. And, you know, I've seen this again and again and I've used it on myself, um, to eliminate allergies to cats, for example. So I think this is the really interesting point about this and and Debbie maybe you want to chip in here too like we can we can get all caught up in this this blood allergy and and all the but it kind of seems to me at this point that wouldn't our efforts be better spent on going into that matrix of what's causing your body to decide that this is dangerous and kind of addressing it at that level how does that strike you Debbie yeah, um, sorry, I was taking a pause for thinking. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I fully agree, and I, you know, and I think the whole piece that stress, um, how stress comes into play with our immune system is kind of undeniable, and especially for any of us that have autoimmune disease, it it becomes really clear. Um, you know, the the other place that my brain is going to, just as a nutritionist, and again, as someone who's you know, for 15 years now been working with people on their diet is uh, where food itself becomes a stress on the body. Um, And um, and so, you know, and I've shared this with you, Jeannie, but not with everybody else about, you know, that my my personal experience with food allergy testing has actually been quite frustrating is, (laughs) you know, it's I have – you know, I said this to you in an email. I feel like I have the population of clients who is so type A, you know, if they're told to omit a food, they're going to omit it to the T. These are not the people that are cheating. These are the people that are paying for the education on where the foods are found, reading the labels, you know, um, avoiding all the foods, and then unfortunately, you know, not um, – not finding beneficial results for the most part um, or changes in symptoms is what I mean by that from avoiding um, a lot of their their foods you know and there's a caveat to that which i'll I'll say in a second um, and and two things you know I, I don't know to use my magic number today two things for me kind of come up from that you know the first is that um you know there's there's also you know a, a stress that comes to us from having such a limited diet where we can't eat you know, our normal foods and we're going to people's houses with lists of what we have to avoid before they can cook dinner for us, you know. And I've questioned that for a long time, is really the cost-benefit to um, to avoiding all of these foods and, and the stress that that puts on the body and how healing that is for the system. Exactly. You know, yeah. um, and then and then the second thing that I've that I've also found with these food allergies is that um, for me personally, I took gluten and dairy out of my diet. I'd say it's over a decade ago, and when I had such um, huge shifts in my digestion and how I was feeling, I started doing that with clients. And what I found was that. Once they started doing that, whether it came up in an allergy testing or or not, that all of the other ones 
that they came up with in their tests were actually far less significant than gluten and dairy. Like I, you know, have joked to this day that, you know, of all these tests that I've run, when the client comes back with, you know, a, a three-plus reaction to banana or a three-plus reaction to, you know, uh, black bean, like I really haven't found that any of those are the kind of foods that someone takes it out and night and day difference, but I have found that with gluten and dairy. Um, and so, you know, and that's what I was uh, alluding to when I was saying that food itself can become a stress on the body. And, you know, the more that we look into all the ways that our food supply has been changed and the genetically, the genetic engineering of foods, you know, the way that wheat in particular has uh, morphed from, you know, what it used to be to a high gluten-containing grain because nobody sits down and eats a bowl of wheat berries anymore. They uh, are making wheat into breads and pastas and all this stuff, so they now breed high-gluten wheat, which is not what our ancestors, you know, were, were eating, um, that, that food itself, like I said, um, has, has become a stress on our body. Does that make Absolutely. sense? And, and oh, you yeah. In the U.S., they add, um, they still add a lot of these things to the dairy, um, such as even antibiotics and... Exactly. Uh, Growth hormones, RHB. Yeah, and that, that kind right? of stuff. That's that kind of stuff when you're when you're eliminating dairy and you're eliminating wheat um just because of the agricultural practices and the way we mass produce these products um this is probably contributing to a lot of the um food intolerances that people have developed um and the sluggish sort of digestion of them and all the rashes and whatnot the bloating and the gas all that could be contributed just because um due to the fact of how we manufacture these products now. Um, I think that if you went and got some of these products from the way that they used to be um, manufactured, or that's why all this is sort of new, this sort of epidemic rise in in these food intolerances or allergies is quite astounding if you step mm-hmm. back and look at, you know, I had a friend from Germany who came with and she goes, what is with the gluten in your, <laughs> she hasn't seen such large number of these gluten-free products anywhere, and she just, it was like mind-boggling to her what this, what is wrong with our gluten system here, because um, they don't have the same thing in, in Germany. Um, yeah. I've had clients who have gone and lived in Europe for a few years and fully gone back on gluten and think that they're fine, and then they move back to the States. And I have one client in particular, and uh, she came back and ate what she, you know, normally was eating for the two years or three years they lived in London uh, back in the States and, and showed me she had a ring around her lips. Uh, which is how she reacts to gluten in food, um, and that didn't happen for her for three years living in London. I, I don't know how many doctors I've talked to, and they have told me exactly the same story about their entire patient load. They yeah. go to Europe on holiday, and they can eat pasta and bread, and they eat it here, and they either have an allergic reaction or, you know, they're extremely constipated or massive bloating, or and they go to Europe and not a problem. Exactly. Yeah. But we could even take this discussion further and a little bit more out there of uh, not leaving the States, but I've had the clients who just can't eat dairy without terrible gas bloating, you know, diarrhea, whatever whatever it may be, and then they go on their honeymoon, and they're relaxed for two weeks on a beach somewhere in the United States, and they can eat it. You know, and that yeah. kind of goes back to you know our other uh, discussion about you know that it's not just uh, so linear that you know stress and where the state of our body is at is going to affect how we process the food or not. Yeah, 
and it's whether so sorry go ahead Sharon I was just saying look at all these factors how are you supposed to synthesize this for an individual it's very it's it's a challenge I, this is where even the medical community is is sort of stumped they don't know how to deal with and what the medical community often does unfortunately is dismiss people uh, due to the complexity of the issue and their inability to sort of get a handle on all the contributing factors they say well you know it's in your head and you know, they, they sort of this dismissiveness um, to people's concerns or symptoms I think is the thing that causes even more distress in an individual um, because they're not getting the answers they need. They don't know what to change. Um, but if you look at all the factors, whether your own stress, the way we produce food, your sort of own state of mind and your um, response to a certain type of um, product is all going to be dependent on so many different things that goes beyond a blood a blood allergy test, for example. Exactly. Well, and and then we're really back into Bruce Lipton's work on epigenetics. You know, where you know they're looking at at how you know again, Sharon, what you said about how the immune system decides to pair that protein with the danger signal or not. And you know, his work is showing that a lot of that decision is environmentally based, and by environment, it means your thoughts, your feelings, past trauma, um, learned experience. So, you know, then, and then, you know, we're back to all the, you know, you're on honeymoon and you're relaxed and your whole um, environment for your your human organism system is going to be different. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I have a question for Asherin. Is, uh, is, what does uh, the research say about the existence of um, delayed food reactions, which is really the mechanism that these, you know, the MRT and uh, IgG are going on? Uh, is that, you know, that that you know, it's really clear what IgG food reactions are, and and that they're pretty much immediate, um, but that delayed food reactions are kind of said to affect things more like the migraine headaches, the irritable bowel syndrome, the low-grade inflammatory processes, and those are really the things that my clients are, are trying to get a handle on, you know, which is why someone points them in, in that direction. Uh, so delayed food reactions and then uh, cross-reactions to food, which, you know, as we looked at also the Cyrex testing, which they're saying that these foods have similar protein structures to the gliadin and gluten, and someone who's allergic to that already might have a cross-reaction to one of those foods. The the second question is is somewhat easier to answer. So a lot of those um, uh, cross-reactions is actually very similar. I I think you'll find those more in people who have um, other types of allergies, like asthma, for example. And usually... This happens when you are taking an allergen such as a, a pollen, for example, and you're exposed to that, and certain certain types of foods get coupled to this antigen to your immune system. So um, what happens is that you start responding to that food in a way that you respond to pollen. And these often cause more mild, sort of like the mucus buildup, or you might have that sort of taste in your mouth where you have that, you eat a certain type of raw fruit, for example, and you get, some people get that tingling sensation in their mouth. That's often the cross-linking of um, a food with an an allergen that is uh, in the environment at the same time. I think grass, 
pollen um, and I think birch are common types of these coupling agents that in certain types of foods you eat them to um in the in the presence of these allergens and they'll often they can get coupled not often but they can get coupled um and they they get these sort of more milder symptoms of uh just your mucosal sort of layer usually just in the mouth or in your nose they don't cause very severe like anaphylactic type shocks but similar mm-hmm. to what you would experience with an allergy um mm-hmm. to pollen your other one is um your other question regarding this delayed type uh, response is uh, it's a little bit more complicated, but it's a different type of uh, immune response where it's um, it's called a delayed type hypersensitivity reaction, and it's not really mediated through the antibody response like most allergies. It's actually a T cell mediated response, and um, in this case, your T cells are going to be um, sort of responding to these foods uh, in a way like they would normally against a pathogen. Um, It's a little bit rarer because uh, you would need this being presented by your macrophages and they sort of produce a different type of delayed type hypersensitivity. And I don't think that there are many types of food allergies per se that are, are linked to this delayed type hypersensitive mediated by T cells, which is completely different from an antibody type response that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you won't it's it's harder to test for that kind of uh response in the blood um because you're not going to be looking at IgG or IgE, which is usually through your antibody response. These are going to be T cells that are sort of responsive to a certain type of protein and they would secrete uh, for example um cytokines that sort of aggravate your immune response and and cause some kind of inflammation. Mm-hmm. Um but there're not many foods that um that we know of just because it's harder to link anytime you take away that immediacy. Um this is even with uh like I I used I studied a lot of adverse drug reactions. And those adverse drug reactions that occur immediately after you ingest a drug it's much more it's much easier to couple those two things. But when as soon as you put a time lapse between when you consume or are exposed to a certain uh, trigger and the response that you get, the ability to make that association uh, is much more complicated. It, exactly. It's harder for us to sort of uh, make that association. That's why probably there are fewer um, sort of uh, examples of that uh, in our knowledge base in terms of certain foods causing a delayed type response like that, which doesn't mean it doesn't occur. It's just that it's another gap that we have in our knowledge base just because we are limited in our ability to uh, look into that uh, more with greater scrutiny. Mhm. I like what you're pointing out, Sharin, about these these big gaps of understanding because I think from the end user's point of view, that's really important to know rather than having, you know, going to a doctor and having it presented, well, this means this, so then we'll know this. And right. then you carry the load of all that information, but yet it does. It's not actually making sense to you, and you're. It's not actually aligning with what you know about your body, and you're like, what? And you you feel even more secure, and you feel even more stressed. And I like the way that you know we're really bringing out the fact that there's a lot we don't know, and that we just actually can't make a lot of the conclusions that we're making about things. And I'm just, I'm just really stuck on this. Um, 
you know, immune system preparing it with signals as to whether it's dangerous or not. Like I just, that just rings a massive bell in my whole system of, wow, that's the, that's the ticket. Like we need to go so much deeper into that because Debbie, that makes me think for this delayed type hypersensitivity, you know, what decisions is that person making, whether consciously or subconsciously? And what kind of stressors have entered their life since they consumed that food? And then even something we were discussing briefly with Sharin about how the immune system, especially for women, is really linked to the hormones. Mm-hmm. Right? And if we maybe, Sharin, yeah. you can go into that really. Um, just tell us that again so people on the call can hear that because both Debbie and I found that really interesting. On how your sex steroids sort of regulate your immune response. Yeah. Um, women, if you think about the, the sort of task women are, are uh, dealt, uh, they have to be able to carry a, what we call a graft transplant, essentially, when a baby is something that's mismatched to you immunogenically. And so the the ability of women to carry this for nine months and not only carry it, to nourish it, um, requires the sort of cooperation between your sex steroids, which are in women is basically your ovarian hormones, your estrogen and progesterone, need to communicate with your immune system and say, hey, this is safe. Do not, you know, do not attack this. When you do attack it, if there, if whenever you get a danger signal with a fetus, you get a miscarriage, and oftentimes miscarriages are due to um, like a co-infection during during pregnancy. So this sort of relationship needs to be very, it's very tight in women, and that's why I think anytime there is miscommunication between these two systems, between your endocrine system and your immune system, interestingly enough, both those systems are very tuned into your stress levels. Your endocrine system helps you metabolically adapt to stress, and your immune system helps you adapt to stress by, you know, launching an immune response against any kind of threat that might be coming in. So there's a very close um, relationship, which I think is underappreciated by most, you know, the medical community, because they're treated, uh, we're very much into silos. We treat endocrine problems one way and we treat immune problems another way when they're very intimately linked. Mm-hmm. In women, every time they have some kind of fluctuation in these hormones, when, um, as, as Debbie had been talking, as we were talking earlier, like puberty or after giving birth or doing, when you're going through perimenopause or menopause, you have these, uh, you know, fluctuations of these, the, the sort of ratio between estrogen and progesterone, which normally need to be balanced out. And um, when you have these sort of fluxes, that's when your immune system is susceptible to sort of uh, getting mixed signals and, and launching immune responses in an inappropriate way. So women are much more likely. In fact, being a woman is the greatest risk factor of getting an autoimmune disorder because of this sort of intimate link and, and the way we have to adapt to stresses in a very complicated manner. Lupus and thyroid disorders, scleroderma, there's a whole list of these autoimmune disorders that um, are prevalent, uh, most prevalent in women. About 90% of the cases are found in women. And I think that is, uh, unfortunately, it's underappreciated uh, right now. We don't really study these um, for some reason in a sex-specific manner. And um, But I think women need to be aware of the fact that, you know, your hormones and your immune system 
are very intimately connected. And um, whenever even taking birth control pills, for example, um, getting vaccinated at a certain time, and uh, for even the flu, it's, our responses are very different from men, but yet we are treated very similarly. Interestingly enough, when you get vaccinated, it's estimated that women make twice the amount of antibodies to a, sp a specific antigen than men do. So you have to think about what are the consequences of the timing of such um, sort of immune modulation, as well as the fact that when you're using a strong adjuvant in, uh, when, whenever you get vaccinated, for example, they add something that sort of gives, uh, tells your immune system, you know, this is dangerous, launch an immune response uh, to it, um, that women will be doing it twice, uh, the, their response will be twice that of men. And so th these are the sort of things that I think people should be aware of um, and women should be aware of because they'll be able to link um, some of their, their symptoms and know their susceptibility <coughs> to a greater well, extent. And I wow. think the rise in gluten intolerance after 40, that's specific to women, not men, isn't it? I'm, I'm not sure. Is, is that true? I don't know. I haven't heard that. Where, oh, okay. That? Yeah. And I, I haven't I, found that. I, you know, in granted a small population who mostly is having digestive disease, I would say that, uh, you know, I've, I've found it equally uh, in men as in women. Oh, interesting. But autoimmune disease, I mean, that's a whole other, a whole other topic. And as you were just speaking, what I was thinking about was that these days, if I were to, you know, list my top my close 15 female friends, I would probably have two of them that didn't have an autoimmune disease at this point, yeah. entering our 40s. It, it is, it is, yeah, the the rise in these autoimmune, it's quite, it's striking to me, and I'm not sure what we're doing that is causing all these, and some of them are very debilitating. For and It's also tied to other sort of uh, women prominent like chronic fatigue syndrome, for example, um, a lot of this is thought to be uh, potentially related to immune function, where you're, you're it's sort of like an exhaustion of your immune system for being overly stimulated. Some have linked it to viral infections. It's unclear, but women are predominant uh, in in these kind of um, uh, sort of disorders. And now they're thinking uh, depression and mood disorders are. Uh, linked to immune dysfunction at the same time. Exactly, which yeah. is why they're using low-dose naltrexone for those, is they're finding that they're more immune-modulated than they realized before. Yeah, they're doing this anti, the same therapy that they, you know, to suppress immune um, inflammation in a lot of uh, disorders like Crohn's, for example, or arthritis, anti-TNF, which is a type of cytokine, they're, they're looked at and found that that helps you know, and as a, it acts as an antidepressant too, and uh, I don't think that is probably the best way. It's like putting a band-aid on on the issue when you're when you're suppressing your immune system, so it doesn't cause a sort of um, systemic inflammation and and therefore causing all um, this depression and mood disorders. This is actually what we call sickness behavior. When you have a fever, for example, your the the way your body gets depressed, um, you stop. When you when you look at animals, for example, they stop grooming. They stop um, be, being interested in the environment. Uh, this is sickness behavior. is very similar to depression, and this is caused oftentimes when you. Uh, give uh, an animal some kind of inflammatory um, sort of signal or you infect them with 
something that will cause systemic inflammation. They they have the sort of um, uh, depressive-like symptoms. And so the link between the immune system and all these other sort of factors, such as energy, mood, um, and, you know, everything else, uh, your your response to stress, all that is very much linked to your uh, immune response. And when you throw in uh, hormones into that, into that mm-hmm. little pool of uh, things, it really makes it very complicated, more complicated than uh, most medical people are able to address uh, to some kind of satisfaction. It takes a holistic um, entire sort of fixing where where is the, the problem initiated and starting from there is the only way I think that you you would be able to counter that kind of uh, systemic um, issue in a, in a person that is uh, exhibiting all these symptoms. Exactly. Yeah. But not easy, is it, Ginny? <laughs> it's it's so like I mean, I'm just I'm just glad I'm not in Debbie's shoes where I'm a practitioner and I've got people walking in the door and I'm gonna be like, Well now what am I gonna do? <laughs> I mean and I think what it comes down to, you know, in, in answer to that question is well first before I answer the question, let me turn the tables on you for a second. So you've probably been avoiding your IgG foods since the talk I heard you do with uh, Dr. Ellis for a month or so now. Have you had a clinical response to that? Well, um, I'll give you eggs as an example. Um, So, yes, I did avoid eggs for four weeks. And then I learned something else very interesting that we touched on briefly um, a little bit earlier is that in terms of the, how we're, our food production and what we're doing to the, few, the food is possibly the source of a lot of these um, immune responses. I learned from, I believe, a Dutch study that when you feed chickens soy in their feed, it actually um, shows up in the yolk of the eggs. So when someone tests allergic to eggs, especially the egg yolk, it may not be the egg they're reacting to. It could be the soy that's in the yolk. Interesting. I know. So I found a farm that produces, that does not feed their chickens any soy. And you can choose. You can have them soy-free or corn-free or both to get rid of those top allergens. And I bought some eggs from there. And then, so after I'd avoided for four weeks, and then, again, getting back to the whole thing of stress potentiating allergy and how, and the epigenetics of how the body is deciding, the immune system is deciding whether to pair something with the danger signal, I went back into the mind-body events surrounding eggs for me. And one of them that I talked about in the call with Dr. Ellis was going on the specific carbohydrate diet from Elaine Gottschall, where eggs and almonds were like the staples of that diet. And emotionally, it was a tremendously stressful time. Debbie, as you pointed out, food became my top, the food preparation and limitation and restriction became my number one stressor in my life. And I literally, I felt like I'd been in jail for a year. It was that severe. So I went back to that emotional um, wounding and and stuff that was paired with those substances at that time. And then I went back even further to myself as a child, and I remember always liking eggs, but for some reason, and it's just as I was doing this, because I used the EFT tapping, as I was tapping through the acupuncture points, I got a memory of my dad with my younger brother and him forcing him to eat eggs because eggs were so good for you. And my brother was vomiting. Like he was, yeah, he's probably wow. allergic to eggs. <laughs> and my dad would keep trying to make him eat eggs. 
Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, hmm, if he was that crazy about eggs, that energy would have come through when I was a child and he was feeding me eggs. So I'm going to tap on that too. I'm going to go all the way back. Yeah. So those are the things that I changed. And then after four weeks, I had my first egg. And I had zero reaction. I did the pulse diagnosis. My pulse did not change at all. And I tested it at half-hour intervals for the next two hours. So it's fine. Mm-hmm. And when you were off of them for a month, did you have less of that throat mucus that you were discussing? No. And here's the interesting thing about this whole process that I would say is my takeaway. <laughs> yeah. Because when Dr. Ellis said, okay, let's give you, um, she actually had me keep a food diary for uh, and in two weeks prior <clears throat> where I wrote down every single thing I ate. And that started making me more aware and looking for, oh, when does that mucus show up? So even before I had the blood test drawn, I actually had answered the question just from Mm -hmm. the the meticulous record keeping. And what I identified, that mucus is caused by casein in cow's Mm -hmm. milk and even a tiny amount. Like if I have one piece of milk chocolate, that's going to give me, I'm going to start coughing and I'm going to have a mucus production. Mm -hmm. And um, commercial almond milk and soy milk, and I think it's because of the carrageenan Mm -hmm. that's in there. I don't think it's actually the soy or the almond because almonds on their own or ground up or in any form are no problem. They don't cause any mucus for me, but in the commercial milk form they do. Mm -hmm. Interesting. That, for me, was actually the value of the blood allergy testing was it made me, prior to the test, keep this log and then notice for myself, oh, look at that. And what surprised me was, you know, just the thought that, well, I'm having such a tiny amount and realizing that, oh, that tiny, tiny amount of that thing can actually cause a mucus, an ongoing mucus issue that'll take three to four days to clear up. Mm-hmm. So that was a super valuable thing, um, and I as and so now since I've been avoiding those things, um, that's been what has made the real difference. But the 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 nuts and the, like all the stuff that came up on, you know, the combined um, the Meridian Valley Lab yep. tests for IgE and IgG combined. Uh, yeah, everything that shows up on there has has had no effect in terms of right. that mucus production. And that's you know, and that's what I you know say for myself, and you know what we say in our office is kind of the take home of all of this is they're really the, you know all of these tests and there's a lot of them um, are really just tools. And if somebody feels like their symptoms you know are not where they want them to be, and you know they want to pursue a test and do a three you know month trial um, and see if they see improvements, you know it it at least gives direction you know, to somebody who, as you guys, you know, mentioned already, has kind of been discounted by, you know, most of the medical community as there's really nothing wrong with you. Um, And so in that sense, you know, they're really great starting points, but I think that we've kind of made it very clear that uh, we're looking at lots of different mechanisms. None of them are tried and true proven, um, and, you know, that all the results as they come back need to be taken in the context of a really complex human body and a lot of interpretation that goes on as a result of that. So, 
And and then if we go back to Sharin, what you were pointing out, like the complexities of the immune system. Um, <laughs> so I'm just just to make things, let's stir the pot even stronger, Debbie. So for someone who comes in and they've been really frustrated and, like he said, feeling really disregarded and not listened to and it's all in your head and blah, 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 and now all of a sudden they've got someone who's on their side, who's taking them seriously, and they're having all the tests done, and they're taking positive action to move themselves towards health. Have we not just created a mechanism for healing? I was like, I know where you're headed. (laughs) As a byproduct, <laughs> I what is it called in uh, uh, Liza Rankin's book? I'm probably botching up her name. Um, Mind over medicine. I believe she calls that the relaxation response. Um, yeah. Is is that when you finally go to somebody that hears you, understands you, that actually in and of itself tells your immune system to calm down. So you know if you've been searching for answers and someone hands you a piece of paper and says, hey, you know, we, we might have found it. Let's try avoiding these two foods or three foods, whatever it is, you know, and seeing if that does it. You have affirmation. You have, you know, somebody that's on your team. You know, that relaxation response, you know, could, could be just as much coming into play or, or more as those foods that you've taken out of your diet. So I'm, I'm- I totally believe that is the case. That is more. There was actually a study we were doing, not related directly to the immune system. This was with fertility. We were measuring um, sort of ovarian hormones in, in urine metabolites with a bunch of other symptoms. Um, our goal was to see whether we can link um, certain uh, physiological symptoms to ovulation in a population of women. Um, and so in, within these 600 women, there were a number of them who had uh, wanted to take part in the study primarily because they'd been trying to get pregnant for a year or more and had been unsuccessful. Uh, these are very success-oriented women. They were, you know, career people and and busy and everything, and they were very frustrated by not being able to get pregnant. But the very act of getting involved in a study that may shed some light as to what was happening happening to them physiologically and talking about their their, their problems and, and their symptoms and everything and thinking there might be a solution at the end of the day. There were a large number of them who had to leave the study because they got pregnant that month that they uh that they started taking part in exactly. our study. Uh, and that was that that relaxation, like like I mentioned, that that link between the immune and endocrine system, that kind of the stress uh, not only causes you know havocs in your in your immune system, it causes havocs in your uh, the stress uh, response is not a favorable environment to actually get pregnant either. So that whole f- mental aspect of being able to get you know some relief and calm and release that stress. Um, allows your body to function normally, uh, not only through your immune system, but through your endocrine system. And when everything, you know, if you look at that as the sort of hub, that that think that you know that uh, idea that you're you're getting assistance or you are you know you're not going to be left uh, you know unhelped in any way. That that very that very you know, task in itself in, in releasing the stress is what allows them to, to recover from whatever is uh, ailing them at the time. So it's, I think it's a very powerful thing. And we know it also in the placebo effect that more than uh, oftentimes between 30 to 40% of the the response to 
um, any kind of medication is actually believing that it works. So if you don't exactly. believe something works or you're not getting um, help or you're not uh, being listened to, it in, the stress in itself is what's uh, adding to the, the clinical phenotype that you may be uh, experiencing. Exactly. And you see, I see this too with um, especially my parents' generation who are still ascribed that authority to the medical doctor that we've mm. lost because we're exactly. like, uh, no, actually, you guys don't know what you're doing a lot of the time and you're making things worse. And their their generation is like, go to the doctor, the doctor will fix you. And yeah. so even with things like my father, who is a doctor, <laughs> and yeah. un- understands perfectly well how antibiotics work and that they only work for bacteria, but you know what? He gets a cold and he can't shake it. And all he's got to do is take his antibiotics and he's healed. Yep. Because he believes it. Because that, yeah. from his childhood, it was anything you get, you take antibiotics, it kills it, it knocks it out, you're done. Exactly. And, and he can't activate that belief, that placebo response on his own. He needs to actually ingest the antibiotics and then he's, he's done. He's healed from whatever ails him. And he's been doing this for 70 years. <laughs> yep. Reality is a state of mind, I tell you. If you believe something, it's true for you. So this is, I don't think that is appreciated enough. That if you, in, that in itself, you, the, your own ability to heal, think, is, is um, underappreciated. But a lot of people look at that as a stress. You're, because they think you're, you're, when you say something, that you know, you in yourself are able to heal yourself for for a myriad of these sort of uh, chronic disorders, that puts a stress on the person saying, well, you're saying I'm doing something wrong, that it's my Mm -hmm. fault Mm -hmm. that I have this condition. And that's another thing that, you know, I became more conscious of. I used to say this a lot. I said, well, you know, you you have the ability, you know, you've got this learned helplessness thing. You you are are able to take control of this. And I realized that saying that to someone, was actually quite stressful to them um, mm-hmm. because they were taking this as some kind of, you know, blame game kind of thing that, you know, you're you're saying that my, you know, whatever I'm, I'm experiencing, my disorder, this chronic fatigue is all due to my own, um, you know, inability to handle the way I'm, can, you know, perceiving an issue or some kind of stress. And um, so it's a fine line in, in giving people power. I thought this was very empowering. When someone tells me, you know, oh, it's really, you have the ability to do, you know, change this for yourself. For me, I was like, wow, okay, you know, if it's up to me, I'm going to, you know, be able to fix this. Um, but for other people, this is quite debilitating that you're saying, you know, you're, it's all in your head. If they don't know where to start, that's why I think getting the type of help that you provide um, as that resource and using a more holistic approach is often much more helpful overall than um, going to a doctor that gives prescribes only antibiotics because a lot of these treatments, these Band-Aid treatments that we give people, not that antibiotics are Band-Aid treatments that can be effective in some ways, but a lot of these sort of like um, anti-inflammatory medications and such are basically Band-Aids um, that are, are not you know, looking at the underlying issue for a person and um and it causes if if they were benign into themselves then it wouldn't be so much of a problem but if they're contributing to uh you know more things going wrong in the body then um it's probably the, the medical system in this case is not actually helping you know they're not it's not that hippocratic oath for first do no harm a lot of these sort of um 
this Band-Aid treatments are causing more harm in a person. So, and especially more complicated issues such as, um, you know, chronic inflammation, depression, um, food intolerances, those kind of, when we're giving things that suppress normal, like physiological functions, I don't think that is uh, in the long term beneficial to to people. So um, I can understand why, and I and I sort of advocate for them to find other ways of healing themselves for these situations. Absolutely. So if we go back to um, the stat that only two percent of the population is is actually clinically allergic, and the rest are food intolerances. Um, and then, Shireen, you mentioned briefly something you talked about. You said um, that the body can tolerize. So um, I guess that would mean become more tolerant to something that, you know, maybe is triggering it a little bit. Can you talk about that? Like what are the – because my brain is now going, okay, let's let's stop talking about food allergies and let's talk about food intolerances that cause, you know, a lot of the – the symptoms that you listed, Debbie, or that people are struggling with, you know, the mm-hmm. bloating and the, the gas and the, um, you know, Migraine rash. headaches and... Exactly, headaches. IBS, yep. Yeah. Um, and then let's look at ways to, first of all, identify what would be the best ways of identifying those intolerances and then what would be the best ways of, you know, Sharin maybe triggering this tolerization response that the body is capable of. Yeah. So it depends if you if you actually do have a true allergy to something. You might have heard of these desensitization tests that people um, are given if you have an allergy to a certain thing. Um, some some allergen uh, allergists um, can be sort of tolerized to when you are exposed to this in small amounts continuously, and eventually your immune system sort of undergoes a class switching or energy where they stop responding in such a stressful manner to this particular food. This is only if you actually do have a certain type of um, immune response to an antigen. It is it is a it's not a perfected art. Uh, not everyone who is exposed to certain things over time will will get desensitized to it. Um, and this might be part of that whole like the holistic stress response. If every time you're you're exposed to that your body's in this sort of you know, the danger signals are on, you know, full alert and everything, it will be hard to get um tolerized to this. But if if for example you have like a, a pollen allergy being exposed to it um in, in small doses in a certain manner, um changes the way your immune system sees it such that the next time that uh you're that those particular um B cells will not be producing that type of antibody, the IgE antibody to it anymore. So basically um, all allergy desensitization programs should take place on the beach in Hawaii. Exactly. <laughs> you open up. I, if you're like, this is a business idea for anybody who's listening. As long that as you don't have hydrophobia or something, every, that would be a good idea. <laughs> yeah. The thing that's interesting that's coming to mind for me, um, just to chime in before you go on, is that the sensitization for IgE allergies, you know, low grade over time to build a tolerance, um, is interesting because the literature on the, you know, the the intolerances that we're talking about, the IgG, the MRT, is actually, you know, very much the opposite, is that you avoid the food 
for a period of yeah. time, uh, you know, which is one month, three months, six months, depending on who you talk to, to actually let your immune system calm down and stop triggering it as a response. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious your take on the validity uh, of that with your background. Yeah, I think what for most doctors when you're treating, if you know you're going to respond badly to something, the easiest way for them to deal with it, okay, don't go near that, you know, thing anymore so you won't be, you know, when someone says, oh, this hurts when I do this, and they'll tell you, stop doing that. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, just stop doing that. And so um, the easiest path, if it's easy to do, like, for example, it's very hard to get tolerized, though they've they've managed it for some people, for peanut allergies, for example, just because of the risk of get, of launching a, a more severe allergy, most people just tell you, just avoid it. Um, because of the the fact that desensitization is not a perfect art, there's no guarantee that this kind of small exposure is going to make you tolerized to this particular uh, substance. For them, the easiest thing to do is just, okay, just don't go near it. You won't have an immune response to anything. You'll be fine. Um, so that is, those are the two approaches you can actually take. You can try to get tolerized to it by small exposures in a certain manner, or you can avoid the food entirely and not, not risk a, a severe response such as anaphylaxis. So I think for many, uh, for many physicians who are, who for the sake of time and everything else and effort, telling you to just don't go near it is a lot easier uh, down the line than than trying to desensitize you. Uh, to a certain food. So, and so partly, is there no is there no value, Sharin, as part of the desensitization process to avoid the food entirely for a period of time to let the immune system calm down and then begin the desensitization process? Are you talking yeah. about allergies or intolerances? I, at this point, I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> well, for example, for for example, in in intolerances. They have found, like certain cultures, for example, don't uh, consume a lot of milk. So yeah. as adults, those people just don't make a lot of lactase, for example, the enzyme that breaks down lactose. For them, you know, they've found that um, many can start consuming milk products if they slowly start introducing mm-hmm. it into their diet, uh, little by little, just so your your digestive system is able to meet the needs, you know, up the up the production of that lactase that is needed to digest that food. So that's an intolerance that works on a similar sort of idea in, in which you give small doses over time. Right. Um, so in in terms of food, it could you could very uh well try to, you know, remove a certain food for a period of time and re- that by that you are you would be reducing the number of responsive uh, immune cells, Ig or those B cells that would be lingering around. So when you have a high number of these, it's much, I guess, much more difficult to desensitize than when you have a smaller number. So I, I, I do think there is value in in remo- removing exposure to a certain food until you reduce the number of responsive immune cells in the environment, and then slowly allowing them to uh, get desensitized to a certain to a certain food over time. This will not work as much uh, as well as intolerances, if you think about it, because intolerances you want to rev up uh, as much as you can. The sort of exposure to a certain uh, thing you might not be making enough enzyme to, such as milk, um, by delaying, by removing all milk and then slowly introducing it, you'll be even more deficient in that enzyme um, by 
not being exposed to milk products over that time. Okay, um, that that totally is awesome. I love that you said that because, you know, with my tolerances with dairy, I knew that my body didn't really like it, but I loved cream so much that I would have it occasionally and I would have, you know, if I'm out, I would have cheese and so I would get a mild response, and then I went through a period where I thought, oh, I'll just cut this entirely and see what happens. And since then, I have the tiniest amount of dairy, and I get a lot of bloating, and I have to get up in the night and have a bowel movement. Like, my response has just ramped up to dairy. Yeah. So, oh, my gosh, that just that would have been really useful to know back then. <laughs> Hindsight is everything, but you can always start. You know, today is the day where that makes the most difference. I say so. Exactly. Yeah. So, so even for someone like me who's gone through that, would you say today start by just having the tiny amounts and see if you can yeah. re-kickstart whatever's needed to tolerate dairy in my body? Yeah, and I, I would start with things that are have ferment, like you know, yogurt have yeah. the bacteria that help. You know, it doesn't have a a high level of lactose because it's used as a source of sugar for the bacteria. So, you know, starting off with that uh, sort of mixture where you're introducing probiotics at the same time because that's another huge other area that we're just starting to appreciate that a lot of food intolerances, even allergies, are largely influenced by your microbiome, your sort of the bacteria that are in your gut that help metabolize and digest a lot of these foods. And the byproducts that these bacteria make can often be what is more causing either allergies or having a beneficial effect. Um, so that is a new area that we've just started starting to understand that a lot of these you know issues people have um, are regulated by our our gut bacteria themselves. So exactly. and the and the byproducts that the beneficial bacteria produce. Yeah, um, that that makes a huge uh, like physiologically. They're even thinking that obesity. They they've done fecal transplants uh, from a person a, a lean person with a certain type of microbiome in the gut, trying to give that to a person who's uh, who has uh, obesity or metabolic syndrome, and trying to see if you can give the lean bacteria type so their their body will be responding to food in a similar way. Yeah, and I just read a study that showed the reverse that a woman uh, got a fecal transplant from her uh, overweight teenage daughter, and the woman herself had never she had C diff, um, but she never had a weight problem in her whole life. Um, and she took the fecal transplant from her daughter, and it cured the C diff, but she went up thirty pounds in a year. Oh. And uh, they had her on, like, a calorie-restricted diet, you know, all of this stuff, and uh, she could not get back to her normal weight that she was at for 40 years or whatever it was of her life. Um, and uh, and they attributed that to getting the fecal transplant from her overweight teenage daughter. That is Imagine amazing. bearing that burden if you were the daughter. <laughs> <laughs> well, you cured her C. diff at least. <laughs> That's but then true. it then it cycles back to the mother anyway because why is your daughter's bacterial flora so messed up? And then Good and this point. is what we see, right? With with the gut flora, like if you have someone who's coming in with IBS, you can go back three generations and you will see insufficient gut flora at each and it just sort of intensifies as it comes down the generations. Um mm-hmm. And so at yep. some point, like you said, Sharin, today is the day, your most powerful day. 
today start doing probiotic retention enemas, start doing high dose oral supplementation, like those types of things to and know that it's gonna take um, you know, six to twelve months to rebuild that gut flora because, you know, there's so many stressors in our environment and, and what we consume and, and all of the chemicals, you know, from environmental toxins that it just takes a lot longer to implant a good flora these days than in the past and you know like and we people know, yeah we know uh what you were saying before about your parents generation you know which is the same as my parents generation that we now know that antibiotics are not candy that mm-hmm. you know they they don't have you know uh, a purely beneficial effect that that you know all the ways that our parents were given them and then we were given them as children you know severely has impacted our gut flora and the choices that we need to make with our own children to preserve their gut flora is you know certainly different so. and then and then go back through your generations and find out, okay, at which point did Grandma stop making her own fermented foods exactly. and consuming them because exactly. people think, oh, I buy yogurt, I no, you buy it in a store, it is not potent, it does not have the beneficial strains because acidophilus and, and bulgaricus and everything that you need to culture yogurt, there are really cheap strains and they're really expensive ones. Well, guess which yep. ones they're going to use for commercial yogurt where it's all about price. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Sharin, do you remember your grandmother using, making and eating fermented foods? Yeah. Actually, a lot of, a lot of the, what, what was, my grandma's a very interesting case because she stopped actually eating a lot of the food she made because of her own in our family, we have uh, a problem with uh, stomach acid, and she was suffering um, later in her life for with um, sort of acidic that reflux disorder. Mm-hmm. And she she was she lived well into her 90s, um, but she was sort of subsisting on milk and digestive cookies for the last 20 to 30 years of her life. But she would cook all these really great foods. A lot of them were based on uh, a lot of a lot of our culture has a lot of yogurt-based um, foods, a lot of the mm-hmm. dressings and, and drinks such as it's called um, chash, which is a type of milk drink. Um, not a milk drink, I'm sorry, a yogurt uh, sort of lassie, I guess. It's very similar yeah. to it. Yeah. yeah. And that was so, like, it was one of the most common types of foods that we would have. A lot of chutneys have sort of a, a fermented um uh, sort of products in there. So it's I think it's almost in every culture you have the sort of fermented products um that are that are consumed all the time. In in Germany it was a sauerkraut um was very common. So we we ha- always had a way of introducing um some kind of uh, probiotics into our food system and I think um we have our our environment, we pasteurize everything and we are, become very sterile. And mm-hmm. this is probably a contributing factor that why we're linking, you know, our immune system is uneducated. Our kids are totally sterile. They're not allowed to get sick properly. And, you know, um, and you're going to have an immune response or an immune system that doesn't respond normally uh, to a lot of these sort of um, inert or not benign antigens in the environment. And that is sort of probably contributing to a lot of the um, allergies and and intolerances that we have that is almost epidemic now. Um, when I was going to school, peanuts were still allowed on the school grounds, but now, you know, you can't take exactly. a lot of foods 
to because someone's going to there's likely someone going to have some kind of very severe response to it and this is all fairly I think it's fairly recent I don't remember it being so so bad previously and so something has changed in the way we live and the way we consume things and the way we um are exposed to uh potentially dangerous or benign antigens in the environment that our immune system can't differentiate. Or I also uh, think that to add to the third piece to that is that our um, our environment is so overburdened with toxins that mm-hmm. our liver is unable to keep up with that, and that's another contributing factor as well. You know, and historically, I know many cultures did regular cleansing rituals as part of, um, you know, fasting or cleansing, you know, which we certainly don't do mainstay here in in our country, um, unless, you know, you go down the alternative health route of doing a cleanse. Um, and, uh, and, you know, just the burdens of the plastics and the, you know, xenoestrogens and all that stuff that our, our bodies have to handle now is compounding everything that we're talking about. And our, and our foods need to be uh, shelf-stable for so long, so the type of preservatives and even fats that we're, we're adding, trans fats, things, and these preservatives that, you know, like benzoate and all these things that are, are quite detrimental to, mm-hmm. to health. And so on top of a sterile environment where we don't get the probiotics, we're getting these things that, you know, you, you keep these foods out on the shelf. Normal food degrades, right? So this mm-hmm. stuff gets stay there for yep. for years and be completely fine. So that's really telling you that that is not really food that um that is good for digestion and it's part of uh something you can consume without causing issues down the line. So um yeah, it's a huge challenge now and those foods are the cheapest to get. So if you're if you're, you know, conscious of uh, how much you're spending on, on food, you're not gonna be getting the stuff that's good for you. Because it's so much more expensive than this stuff, um, the cheap stuff that is uh, not. It's probably going to be adding to whatever illness that you have. And even just the amount of time that you eat out in restaurants, it's that's the thing that's really striking me. And you know, we we got this brought home with my husband, who is one of the healthiest people I've ever known. He's had nothing more than, you know, a cold or an occasional flu bug in his entire life. And he's, you know, just so vibrant and physically strong. And he had all his, you know, physical and blood work done. And his cholesterol was high. And I was like, what? Mm-hmm. There's no... And then we... So we went, How, what could be causing this? Because it was so bizarre. And then we realized that, well, he coaches the boys' soccer and drives them to all their things. And so just as a result of the sports environment, and sometimes they're playing and they don't finish the game till 8 or 9 o'clock at night, and he was going with the kids and then just eating out, you know, at, you know, kid-friendly places, you know, what quality mm-hmm. of food they have, um, mm-hmm. three three times a week, three mm-hmm. or four times a week. And that was enough that my cholesterol is perfect and his is high. Mm-hmm. Is, a, is a is an unhealthy ratio, and I'm con- I said, well, that's what it is. I said the amount of hydrogenated fat you're consuming mm-hmm. just from eating out three to four times a week would be mm-hmm. enough to change your cholesterol levels. Interesting. Yeah. So it can help your health and your wallet by not doing that so many times. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I was gonna say you'll have to pack him some brown bag dinners and and monitor his cholesterol in three months and. Take out that variable and then see how it changes. 
Yeah, but exactly. But that's the challenge, isn't it? Because that would take so much prep, like for people to think, you know, have to prepare and think about all this ahead of time. And, you know, it's, for most it's just easier not to do that. But people don't make a change, my, my dad included, until you've already, you know, suffered some kind of consequence. You know, if you get a heart attack and then you say, okay, I have to make all these changes. And they, they're huge changes at the end, you know, once you've, you know, gone over that point where you've actually done damage and then you try to fix things. It's a lot, you know, your your changes in behavior and everything else has to be so much more drastic than the small changes that you can make ahead of time to prevent mm-hmm. it. You know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of the cure, they say, and it's absolutely true. Exactly. Well, and also, as we, we were talking about, looking at it holistically. So, again, going back to Ian, it's not just that he's been eating out at restaurants, you know, three or four times a week. He's also extremely negatively stressed by the winter weather and the nonstop rain and gray that we get here. Mm-hmm. And um, he will get pressure headaches from the, you know, the cloud cover drops. It increases the pressure, and it'll actually give him a headache. And I said, you know what? Here's the other thing. And I watched him over this weekend, uh, this winter, and I said, you are heading for a health crisis. Like, this is affecting you so strongly. You have got to find a solution to the winters. Like, you've, we've either all got to move somewhere or you've got to find a way to get yourself what you need. Like, what do you need? Do you need infrared saunas? Do you need to actually mm-hmm. leave and go down to Arizona every month for, you know, December, January, February? Like, you have to figure this out and you have to action it. And I think that's... The other reason his cholesterol is so high is because the amount of stress that has mm-hmm. caused him, you know, is is a huge factor. So we're back to this whole, you know, even in someone who's extremely healthy, to go, well, something like that, where they are, their body-mind, for whatever reason, is super affected by rain and lack of sun. You have to change your lifestyle. You have Absolutely. to make a shift. Yep. Absolutely. I agree. So I, I, I wonder if there's a better test, Debbie, that you can give people who walk in the door <laughs> to figure out, like, where are all of these things that are making your immune system attach a danger signal mm-hmm. to a protein? Where, what's, where are all those triggers and where are all those? That would be really exciting to work out, like some kind of, instead of, you know, a blood allergy test, a a danger signal, immune immune danger signal test. Yeah, well, it's what, interesting, and this isn't quite answering your question, but one of the things um, from your last talk that I that you just for whatever reason made me think of that I wanted to address is, you know, I think that ultimately there there is no perfect test. You know, all of them have their benefits, and you know, you could use them all as a tool, as I said before. Um, but you had mentioned on the last one that the ultimate test is uh, elimination and reintroduction. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I had a really different opinion on, than that on that than you, which is that I actually find that to be the the one of the worst tests because you just can't um, eliminate out all the other lifestyle variables that we're talking about. You know, so you you eliminate a food. Let's just use eggs as example. You know, you put it back in, and you know, and that day or the next day, you know, you get a headache, and you're like, your your body wants to say, well, it's the eggs. I put that back in, but you were also stressed getting all three of your kids out the door to work in the morning, and then you hit traffic, and you thought you were going to be late to your client. You know, well, how much of that was the headache versus the eggs? You know, or and so, as, yeah. 
And as we learned in this call, or you got your period, so your hormones changed. Exactly. Or, and that wasn't the right day to put the egg back in. Or, <laughs> as Sharon as pointed out, avoidance is actually not a good idea because it can actually heighten the reaction when your body's reintroduced to it. Right. And actually, I'll say something about that in a second, too. But what what I've said to clients for years is that, you know, in my opinion, unless you're Buddha sitting up under a tree, you know, for two weeks and introducing your foods with food being the only variable, um, I've found that to be one of the hardest, um, you know, tests to, to find food allergies, um, unless we're talking about, you know, the more immediate ones, like I eat it and my stomach cramps up. That That's an obvious one, you know, mm-hmm. but the ones where you're like, okay, 20 four hours later, I have that migraine headache or, you know, I feel a little bit of bloating, but, you know, way apart from eating the the particular food, um, it's actually really hard to to use that as as the standard, you know. Um, And then what did you say that I was going to... about cutting it out and then reintroducing it and that oh, the reaction. Yeah, and and you know, and again just, you know, kind of as the 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 voice of the practitioner, you know, one of the things that we've kind of said as practitioners and you know, I'm not entirely sure if this is even true is that um is that when you take a food out um and you have a more strong reaction when you put it back in, um, that what I was told, you know, and I'm open to interpretation or being wrong, um, is that when you've had the food in your diet for so long, your body actually stops outputting um, a, a strong immune response because it's tired. And then you take the food out, and then you put it back in, and you actually get a strong reaction to the food, like the gas or the bowel movement in the middle of the night that you were talking about um, that, that's clearly telling you that that food isn't good for you. And what I've learned about that is that it's actually because you, your immune system is able to tell you again that it's bad for you, so you don't want to desensitize it in the way that you know we spoke about before, that you actually want to take that as a sign that your body's able to tell you that that food isn't good for you. So, you know, and gluten is that perfect example of, of that one is I've had people for 10 years now who, you know, eat gluten routinely. You know, they say that they can't detect any problem from gluten, yet they're having, you know, the IBD that won't go in remission and, you know, or the IBS or whatever it is. Um, they take gluten out of their diet. They feel a million times better. They're sold on that that was a huge part of what was, you know, uh, interfering with their immune system being calm. And then they go somewhere, you know, and someone serves them something and they're in an uncomfortable situation and think, okay, you know, the crust on this quiche is going to be okay. And they eat it and they have a violent reaction to it where they never had that when they were eating it every single day. You know, and, and my understanding of that was that their body after a year or whatever of not having the gluten was then able to tell them that the food wasn't good for them. And so we're not wanting to do a sensitization to get that food back in their diet, but see it as an indicator that it's actually good that it's out of their diet. And over to you, Sharin. <laughs> that is quite a lot. So as I mentioned to to Jeannie, like when you're when you're having intolerance not due to an immune response, um, you know, being away from a food and then consuming it later, you'll get a worse response because you haven't produced any of the enzymes that are required for its di- proper digestion. Now, in, in the case of wheat, um, it's very complicated because so many people apparently have a wheat intolerance, 
but they don't actually have a measurable um, sort of immune, like an IgA or an IgE, they, like celiac disease is, is actually at 1% of the population. But there's, you know, gluten intolerance seems to be a, a quite widespread. A lot of doctors actually don't even believe it. But that's, again, being that dismissive just because you don't understand it or exactly. it doesn't, that kind of thing. Um, in, in that case, I'm wondering whether it is actually an immune response. When your cells become energized to it, when you said it gets tired, it's usually hard to reverse that tiredness because you've gotten through the way your immune system works. It goes through this class switching. And so when it switches class, you cut out, out of your DNA, it's gone. That first initial response a type, like the IgE, for example, would be cut out of the antibodies and you've got, you would go into, like, an, uh, make an Ig4. Or you, you would go down the line where you can't, you don't respond similarly immunologically to the same food. It's hard to reverse that. So mm -hmm. once your uh, immune system has decided this is the way it's going to deal with an issue, uh, at the antibody level, going back to an initial type of um, allergy type of response is, um, I think, more difficult or rare unless you have some of those initial type of cells surviving in the in the background and, and the other ones that have been tolerized um, going away while you're you're away from a certain type of food. I think in the case of wheat, it is in maybe a large uh, chunk of the response would be the way we process it. The wheat is now mixed in with a whole bunch of other BHT and all these other kind of very um, uh, almost toxic, I would say, uh, preservatives and other kind of chemicals that are added to, to flowers and the whole production, the pesticides that may be used. I think that contributes a lot to, and the way you, you, you know, if you read Wheat Belly, my, my friend read, read Wheat Belly and it goes through mm -hmm. this whole um, very complicated um, sort of scenario and how wheat affects people. Um, being away from wheat that way the 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 way your body was able to digest it, you know, your body adapts uh, to a certain type of challenge by upping its ability to deal with it. So if you're exposed to a certain type of food or even a stress, you get all the sort of machinery needed to deal with it a lot better. So that's why people with, um, you know, I was talking to or, or uh, to sort of exchange emails with Jeannie before regarding a person who had removed part of their stomach and they had they don't have a lot of the digestive enzymes that they previously had. But eventually, a lot of these people, because... Um, your body is so adaptive and, and uh, it's quite remarkable in the in the way it's able to change over time to meet the, the challenge uh, if given the opportunity. So the, the ability to digest and deal with certain types of foods um, is improved while given, while you're still exposed to it in small doses, your body will adapt. It will make the enzyme somehow um, if, if it still has the capacity at a small level. It will just increase its production. So I think the in in many of these cases when when you completely remove um exposure to a certain thing that you weren't able that your you know your response to was uh, suboptimal and you take it away entirely and then reintroduce it and you um your response is even worse than you were before it's probably because you have lost that adaptation over time where you were no longer exposed to it in its ability to deal with it uh I'm I'm not sure it would be due to the immune system saying this is dangerous for you. Um, mm -hmm. Partly because a lot of these foods, 
I don't think your immune system should be telling you, for example, if it's peanuts, that it's dangerous. See, we've we've uh, we've sort of um, uh, changed the way uh, our immune system is dealing with these foods, and are not it's not very helpful for your immune system to be saying a food is dangerous to you when there are other things that should be dealing with um, uh, that are that are actually dangerous. So food exactly. is not one of those things that you want your immune system to say it ain't good for you. It's true. It might be better off if you didn't eat so much wheat or starch overall, but it's not your immune system's call to to tell you that um, mm-hmm. over time. And another interesting thing is that. Um, this was done more in terms of peanuts, is the way a food is prepared um, will have a large a part in how your immune system uh, sort of uh, sees it or, or is uh, immune, how immunogenic it is. So, for example, peen, uh, peanuts that are boiled or eaten raw are not as um, immunogenic as those that are roasted. And this is mm-hmm. partly because how the protein is changed and exposed and, and processed by your by your body and, and shown to the immune system, um, and they've they've seen that, for example, in cultures where most of the peanuts were from a very early age were introduced in a in a form that wasn't roasted, but it was boiled instead. Those people have very few um, peanut allergies in that population. So that's another sort of layer in in terms of how uh, how you respond to foods is actually how it's prepared. Mm-hmm. And then we're back to the gut flora and the the consuming like the fermented foods where you're getting live enzymes. Like imagine a child who from the time they started eating was given fermented foods like right from the start. So their their body is given the help um and the tolerization, you know, tools right from the very beginning. Mhm. And I'm going to say something that's a little bit controversial in this end. I think also getting breast milk from the mother um, plays a large role in how uh, children digest and uh, develop allergies over time because a lot of these, you know, you have an immature immune system when you're a baby, and the mother helps a lot when when you when you drink your mother's milk. She has a lot of these, you know, early antibodies already there. Um, there even there's an own her there the microflora is also there. So um, when when we're giving cow's milk as an alternative or some kind of um, milk product to children or infants at that time, you're actually taking away um, some of that natural development of the immune system from the beginning. And I know this is a lot of stress. Not every mother can and can breastfeed whatever, but I I think uh, many allergy or immunologists know that that does play a role in how um, allergies are produced in children and how the immune system uh, develops in a healthy young infant. So a lot of these things that we're trying to replace as we think are good alternatives may not be giving you everything you need to build up a strong immune system from uh, the get-go. And can't you take it even one step further back that the rise in cesarean births and oh, yeah. baby's not another even right. The baby's not even get you in when you're yeah. There's there's that entire thing you're going through. You're not getting that. Natural you're not getting childbirth. flora to inoculate your gut from passing yeah. through the birth canal. Yeah, and so, there's a whole other that whole. Body yeah, I mean we see that. My husband's a pediatrician, and uh, you know the literature in pediatrics on cesarean births and the link to asthma 
and food allergies and digestive disorders is huge. And so, you know, he learned this 10 years ago. And, you know, of course, cesarean births, you know, they, they, they have to happen sometimes and they save lives sometimes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the first step when, I mean, pretty much the first step for him with every, you know, client is to get them on a probiotic early on. Um, even my daughter who had a natural vaginal healthy birth with me, I used to put probiotics on my nipples when she was breastfeeding just to kind of up her gut flora with the infant strains of probiotics from the from the day she was born. Um, but especially with a kid who was born through C-section to really get, you know, probiotic forms in them as soon as possible. And he's, my husband has seen just huge shifts in kids that get rid of their asthma and allergies and whatnot, you know, very early on from getting the, the probiotics that they weren't initially introduced to. Yeah, well, it's, it's a, it's, it is a very controversial subject because a lot of mothers are, um, they feel like that again, the blame game, you know, it's always a mother's fault. Something happened, you know, <laughs> cesarean, you didn't breastfeed me, and now I have all these issues. And I can, you know, it's, it's a diff, I think telling the truth or exposing, um, where the problems could develop from is, um, we become so politically correct and uh in the way that we can talk about things and um i think it's it's important to at least educate people that of you know there's pros and cons for everything if you're if you're if you need a cesarean section um then that's what you need but if if you're just scheduling it in for convenience sake or exactly uh, it, because it's sort of become the norm now that you know you say well i i would like to give birth on this date and you know the exactly and and I think a lot of doctors don't. In fact, I don't think a lot of doctors know because it's become so normal and part of the medical sort of treatment of women um, that they, they're not really aware or educated of the potential consequences of, you know, taking all these sort of um, alternatives to a natural process, whether it be breastfeeding or, or giving birth. Um, in, but there was an interesting study, actually. I was having a discussion with geneticists. A lot of women, before we were sort of selected for, those women who died due to having narrow hips, <laughs> they often didn't survive uh, childbirth, and and most women had, like, uh, hips that were more rounded, but due to cultural changes and, and the introduction of cesarean sections, a lot of women, myself included, do, probably don't have hips that it would be the easiest or most favorable of giving, you know, natural childbirth. Um, mm -hmm. And we've changed the way, we, you know, the way women are physically formed nowadays. Um, so a lot of women, just because of being not having that sort of uh, the, the hips and everything needed to make that process easy, we've sort of selected for based on the medicalization of this whole, you know, cesareans and whatnot in the way we, we deal with our health. Hmm. It's going to be like those bulldogs who cannot give birth anymore. <laughs> <laughs> There's no natural. It's all in a test tube. It doesn't even have to be inside you. So. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, but I'll tell you. I'll tell you the thing because I'm one of those narrow-hipped women as well. As am and, I. Yeah. yeah. So my. But I'll tell you, my third child. I started going into labor two weeks. And I was calling my midwife, and I'm going, I know the difference between Braxton Hicks this is my third child, and she just kept saying to me, Jeannie, trust your body. Call me as many times as you because I'd be like, okay, we're on. She'd come out, labor would continue, and then stop. 
And I'm like, what is going on? And she's like, trust your body. It knows what it's doing. So when two weeks after this, I finally, and I give birth, and I'm in a birth pool where the water is 100 degrees, which also makes a tremendous difference. Um, My son is born. He is two pounds heavier than my other two children, and he has the second largest head my midwife had seen in 20 years. Oh, my God. (laughs) And my body dislocated my hips in order to birth him. So I couldn't walk or stand for five days afterwards. Oh, and she, God. yeah, and she bound up my hips with strips of cloth to push everything back into the pelvis because it had actually come apart. And my body did that in the two weeks. It was like, yeah, we're not going to be able to birth this baby, so we got to start and get everything moving and and the massive hormone cascades that allow all those ligaments to soften and stretch and all of that. Now, if I'd been in a medical system and I'd gone and he was two weeks late by this point, so I probably mm-hmm. would have been induced, and uh, no question he would have been a cesarean. No question. So that's yeah. the other thing is that when you go beyond that and you really go into the wisdom and the trusting of the body, and then, of course, using your tools that you have, like hot water, which is hugely helps things to stretch yeah. and loosen um, anything and that's time. possible. And time. I mean, time, that's exactly. The, that's the biggest factor. So you need was, a medal of some sort, Ginny. Like, that's amazing that you you'd stuck with that and you had the whole hip so you're fine now oh yeah yeah and i had i had regular body work afterwards to just make sure that everything went back in the right spot yeah yeah no it was and and the thing is um i would was going to say for our previous conversation of you know okay a, a baby is born through cesarean and they're missing that microflora and and, you know, Debbie, you putting the probiotic powder on your nipples so your baby could get it. But I would go back even further and go, okay, and while you're pregnant, you know, you probably, you, I think anybody needs to know you don't have a good bacterial flora because nobody is consuming traditional foods fermented from scratch. And, mm-hmm. you know, with the environment, as Sharin pointed out, our environment is too sterile. We're just so mm-hmm. not prepped. For, for healthy mm-hmm. immune systems and creating healthy babies. So when you're pregnant, to start with high, high-dose probiotics and fermented foods throughout your mm-hmm. whole pregnancy, and then, you know, hopefully you can have a vaginal birth, and then you give your baby, you exactly. know, the life start, the powdered probiotics. I used to put mine in a little soy sauce dish, and they mm-hmm. would suck it right off my finger. Yeah, and, yeah, and I would exactly. I would put it on the my finger, on my nipple, whatever I needed to to get it in her. But she she didn't have any problem taking it. So. Yeah, and I think, and you know, because I came from that perspective of going, wow, like we're so deficient, and we have to assume that. Um, and to do all that work, and then Shrin, what you're saying about the women taking it as blame? Well, I my philosophy of parenting is pay now or pay later. <laughs> So you either, you go through that, like, and of course, in our culture, with the pace of our lives, it's not easy to breastfeed. Like, I breastfed between three kids. I breastfed for five years. Like, that is mm-hmm. that is not an easy task on any level. But if I didn't, now maybe my kids would have asthma or maybe some Asperger's syndrome or maybe some uh, food allergies. And now my life is really difficult on an yep. ongoing daily basis. Yeah. Hey, now but you and I, 
are the examples that Sharon was talking about earlier of the it takes for some people the heart attack to change and you and I have had the yeah. you know not the heart attack but the living our lives with autoimmune disease and realizing that you know what we can set up for our children you know no matter that it's harder for us right now can can you know alleviate so much of the burden for them and the burden for us of you know getting what you and I had to deal with as teenagers so very true very true we already had our wake up call <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. you're very well informed about this thing like if you're looking at you know most a lot of people don't have the resources and the knowledge base that you're you're coming from right so and even if they even if they do because i i have people who i have educated and they've still chosen to you know say supplement feed with formula or whatever um it's just i think you know it's because unlike debbie and me they haven't had a situation where their health has caused them so much stress and time and trouble so they're not they're not giving it the same weight like we, yeah. when you've had a personal experience of how ill health wrecks your life, you yeah. will you will put in whatever you need to put in to prevent that exactly. happening. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Which is why I was saying before that my client population, because it is primarily digestive disorders and IBD of people who have been so down in the dumps and know what it's like. Like these are the clients that will say, "Okay, I reacted to 15 foods. Sure, I'll take them out forever if I need to." You know. Because to them, you know, a diet that would be so hard and so limiting for other people is nothing compared to 22 trips to the bathroom every day, you know. So exactly. it's it's all relative. So I'm I'm going to move us to kind of wrap up. Um, Sounds Debbie, good. Debbie, what as a practitioner, do you need to think about this more, or do you have some takeaways right away from this call that are things uh-uh. that? I mean, I definitely think that I will be thinking about and learning about it more because I think that we're always getting new information. But, you know, I think my takeaways were kind of the same as what they were coming into it, that, you know, I love I love this discussion. I love that we've just had the arena to have it. Um, but kind of what I've come away with is that, you know, we still don't have the answers. And, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of it still is just about, you know, learning, experimenting, trial, you know, and just all the factors. I think the biggest thing that that I've thought more about, which I've known, but I'm glad that we brought to the surface, was just all the other factors that affect our immune system besides, you know, the obvious ones that get tested in blood serum tests and appear on paper. So Exactly. The and hormones, actually, the stress, I, all that. I have one more question for you, Sharin, um, going back to the, the case that Debbie brought where uh, – Okay, someone has been eating wheat for a long time and no discernible negative reactions to it and then removes it from their diet and feels amazing, feels instantly better. And not only feels amazing, has a colonoscopy to prove that their ulcerations are gone. Right. So beyond just feeling, you know, which could be somewhat psychological, actual clinical evidence. Yeah, and even though wheat did not show up as an allergy, um, Sharin, for that person, is there any value for them to, after they've cleared up their symptoms and their, to have wheat in small amounts just in terms of maintaining the food freedom in their lives? Um, or is it better for them to just stay away from wheat 
wholesale, like I'm in terms of the long-term health of the person and taking into account that health is all these things, including stress and, you know, all the environmental factors. Where are you sitting on that question? If I was was that person, um, Mm -hmm. I would be, if it ain't broke, don't break it. If I feel fantastic being away, wheat doesn't have a lot of these, you know, it's not a nutritional powerhouse that, you know, I'm really going to be deficient in some nutrient if I cut it out of my diet. And um, so if I feel fantastic and my gut feels good, and regardless of what the the tests say, because we know the tests are imperfect at this point in time, if I feel that good being away from it, then and it's it's not that difficult nowadays to go wheat free. Um, I would I would not introduce it back into my diet. Right. So if it was something that you know um, you're staying away from a food that has really good nutritional qualities and, you know, you might be deficient in something if you totally stay away from it, then it would be something I'd I'd explore a bit more to see whether or not I can produce a a desensitization protocol um, in my diet in which I can introduce it in small amounts. I think in those people, uh, just because of the problem apparently wheat causes for so many people that are not entirely... um, like the the sort of classical immune responses that we see, um, especially with the large number of food intolerances that are not related to a a classical celiac-type syndrome, that um, I would probably not not break it if it's not broken kind of thing. Right. That makes a lot of sense. But if you had someone who had, you know, 20 of these (laughs) things and, and that it would be severely limiting their life and their freedom and their ability to relax at mealtimes, then you would, do you, overall, would it be better for them to, like you said, pick the ones that are the most, you know, nutritional powerhouses or would make give them the most freedom and build some tolerance to those? Yes, see if you can rebuild it. A lot of times, you see, um, for example, people with IBD, their gut is always stressed, right? So that peptide uh, or that food may always be presented in a way in which there is a danger signal associated. And mm. so it it depends on how well controlled your your symptoms are to whatever other illnesses you might be dealing with. That's why people with asthma or other kind of allergic respond, uh, responders, they are much more likely to have to to develop other allergies because they're always in this sort of hyper stress state in which things are are, are going to be presented in a way in which it gets linked to some kind of danger signal. So mm-hmm. again, it, it would would need to your 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 entire physical state. I think the best time you able to do that is when your other symptoms are controlled. You don't have these ulcerations in your in your gut, or you know, you have a, a sort of body that's able to receive things in a way that is uh, not going to be taken as a threat. Got you. And then so for the food, for the actual food allergy testing, would you say that the only tests worth having at this point in time are the IgE and IgA? Yeah, so um, IgA more for the for the sort of uh, gluten intolerance or wheat intolerance. Um, IgE is the classical sort of immune response. Um, the other things that you've all mentioned is this diary keeping, um, yeah. because we don't have 
we realized that a lot of no, people with no allergic responses will have IgG responses to certain foods, but they have absolutely no kind of clinical symptoms um, that, that are uh, sort of associated with a food intolerance so or a food allergy. So the best way to sort of see whether something you're consuming um, is causing your symptoms is keeping a food, uh, like a detailed food diary like you did, trying the elimination way that if you remove it, does, do your symptoms go away? Does your rash go away? Um, a lot of people have eczema that could be linked to something that they're eating. So, But that takes a lot of work on yourself, but there are not many good, easy uh, diagnostic tests right now um, other than the IgE uh, and eliminating that to see whether or not you have a, a real true food allergy. And which test do you feel is more reliable, the IgE blood allergy test or the surface skin prick test? I think that the surface skin prick test is uh, a lot, it's going to give you quite direct um, indication that if you're exposed to that, you're going to respond that way to that food. It's sort of, it's much more black and white uh, mm -hmm. in my case. But um, there are times you may actually have, so the, the specificity is good but it's false um, sort of negative rate. You might not have a very strong skin response, but it could that food may still be some, some kind of trigger for your immune response that you're not seeing. Um, so, but if you do see a positive skin test, then you, then you know that you do have some kind of um, acute a um, allergy to that food. So I do like the skin prick test. So probably both the skin prick and yeah. the blood allergy for yeah. IgE would be the better way to go. Yeah. Okay, and and, and then just all the things that we talked about, about looking at stress and all the other factors in your environment that cause your immune system to pair that protein with a signal that says dangerous and mm -hmm. looking at ways to address that. Yeah, that's not an easy... <laughs> no. That's, easier. that's the more challenging part about it. Absolutely. And anything you would add to that, Debbie? No, I think I, I think I think we had a pretty complete discussion. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much for being uh, for joining me for this incredible discussion. Thank you and so much. Thanks for uh, coordinating all this. You're welcome. Yeah.